Welcome to the Faith and Grief Podcast, where we explore the intersection of faith and grief. I'm your host, Shelley Craig, Program Director at Faith and Grief. We're a nonprofit that provides grief support programs in person and online through support gatherings, grief workshops, and retreats. Find out more about our programs and this podcast at faithandgrief.org. We hope the stories and interviews you hear provide some comfort and hope on your grief journey. Today's guest is Alan Pesky, the founder of Lee Pesky Learning Center, a nonprofit that works with families and schools and communities to overcome obstacles to learning. In its 25 years, LPLC has become a nationally known force for early literacy. Alan founded LPLC in memory of his son, Lee, who struggled with learning disabilities and died of a brain cancer. Starting out as a social entrepreneur in his 60s, Alan has deeply involved in the growth of the center. In his early career, Alan was a founding partner of the advertising agency Scally McCabe Slopes, which was named Agency of the Year by Advertising Age in 1975. He retired as president in 1983. Alan and his wife, Wendy, are ardent supporters of education and humanitarian causes. Today, we're going to talk about this month's book selection, More to Life Than More, a memoir of misunderstanding, loss, and learning, which Alan and Claudia Ulm wrote together about his experiences with philanthropy, learning differences, and the loss of his son, Lee. Welcome to the podcast. First off, how has um, sort of during this time of the pandemic been for you? I mean, in Idaho, um, it's been challenging lately um, there um, as far as numbers and stuff, but you're in a beautiful place. So, you know, no, I yes, Idaho. Idaho has been incredibly challenging in terms of uh, the uh, uh, fight between those who uh, want to have uh, the vaccination and the masks, and the, those who don't. And um, uh, right now, we're somewhere around fifty to fifty-five percent that are vaccinated in the state, and the state has gone off the cliff in terms of. Uh, the hospitals uh, mm. being overloaded and people literally uh, going into Washington or being flown away to have uh, their health needs taken care of. So Idaho has been extremely tough. Um, uh, in terms of myself, um, uh, it, it sounds selfish, but uh, um, the, um, the pandemic uh, hasn't affected me personally or my wife personally. Um, uh, I was in the, in, the, in, the, in the deep caverns of writing the book and finishing the book during uh, uh, you know, the first year of the pandemic and, uh, and not being able to uh, go out and do a lot of the things I wanted to do uh, was uh, actually to my benefit because I could concentrate on the book. Uh, in terms of... Um, and I'm, a, I'm an outdoor nut and uh, the physical activist, I guess you would say. Um, uh, uh, Idaho is a glorious place to be. Uh, outside my door are mountains. Um, and if, I, if it's the winter, I can go snowshoeing uh, 10, 20 feet from my driveway and go off up into the hills. So was that your um, uh, computer blinking there? Or? One of them, I'm sure. Because uh, between us all, but uh, I did love that you um, love snowshoeing. So I th- I saw that and I thought, okay, only someone who's lived in Idaho for a really long time probably loves snowshoeing. It's so hard. 
oh, no, no, it's glorious. We don't go on trails and we don't go where lots of people are. We drive up maybe five, 10 miles from our home, uh, pull off the side of the road, put the snowshoes on and make our own trail up into the mountains. And it's uh, it, it's heaven. And the, the, the most difficult part, though, of the pandemic was uh, the feeling I had for other people who were really suffering. Mm. And, um, you, you know, you can't sit by and just say, well, my life, nothing's happened to it. Uh, your life is affected, uh, especially uh, uh, with some of the things that were going on that, you know, uh, I won't get into at this point in terms of, you know, uh, political nature and <laughs> so forth. Uh, uh, and I felt very, very bad for an awful lot of people and helped out as much as I could. That's great. Well, I think that's what we've all, you know, it, it's been such an unusual time dealing with the pandemic in and of itself and seeing the suffering and, and loss that's happening. And at the same time, having to deal with the political side of it is challenging too. And none of it, none of it's been easy. Right. Um, unfortunately, uh, but being in the mountains, you've, um, had an, a wonderful place to have to hunker down. Yes. Um, I, I, I've been very fortunate that way. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, uh, I'll take it. <laughs> I'll accept it. <laughs> well, I, that's what I love. Um, my husband is a big outdoor person and loves Colorado, Idaho, that whole area, and did Outward Bound as a teenager and loves to hike and climb mountains. And so uh, as soon as I finished, I handed the book to him because I'm like, you need to read this. Uh, I think you'll appreciate it as much as I have. Anytime, anytime he wants to talk or if he ever gets up into our area, tell him to give me a call and we'll go out and, you know, at my, I'm, I'm sure I'm older than he is. So at my stage, um, I, my legs slow down a little, but I try to keep them moving as fast as possible. Yeah. Well, it, it seemed like from your story, and um, you've lived an extraordinary life. So I think fast is normal for you, yes? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's great. But fast at 88 is different than fast at 38. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but the brain stays the same. You know, a little bit slower, but a little bit better. You know, that's, <laughs> what I, that's the way I look at it. I was like, it might not, may not all connect exactly like it used to, but it's, it's better, you know. You know more stuff, you know. You just have yeah. better experiences. Right. You take a different attitude as you get older in life. Um, you, uh, you, you care less about what other people think, and you care uh, more about uh, uh, yourself and uh, mm. those who are meaningful for you to you. And um, so you, yes, you do change in ways, but I think your basic foundation is always the same. Well, and speaking of that, um, I think the book is such a lovely um, tribute and just shows how much you loved Lee and how much you loved your family. And some of your childhood stories are uh, familiar to me. Uh, we lived in uh, Elmhurst in Queens when I was little. And I did not get to go to Yankee Stadium, though, as cool as, as on a cool day like you did, <laughs> to be there to see Joe DiMaggio and uh, to hear Lou Gehrig's uh, infamous speech. I just think that was, I was so glad you added that piece. It gives framework um, to the life uh, that you've had. But the book is just, I read, it resonated so much with me 
because I saw a lot of my own relationship with my daughter. Um, my daughter has um, a chronic illness, and it is one of those illnesses that if you look at her, no one knows that she has it. Um, but there's challenges with that, both physical, mental, emotional, that go along with it. And there's days that I've struggled with how, how do I do this, you know, and love her the way I need to and love her the way she needs, which sometimes is not the same thing. Well, what, what brought on writing the book? Because you've, I'm sure, done a lot of writing in your career. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I actually haven't done the, the writing that I've done in my career has been mostly about, you know, dealing with business, uh, uh, dealing with, uh, you know, uh, marketing, uh, dealing with, uh, I was in the advertising business and back when the advertising business was you know, be before we had computers and so therefore an awful lot of what we did was being done with pen and pencil and, and, and paper and uh, the computer didn't come out, I think, until 30 years after I got out of business school. So uh, I, I was a Neanderthal from that standpoint. The television came out when I was 13 years of age. And so before that, there was no television. Um, and um, uh, I'm sorry, the question, uh, tell me the question again, Shelley. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's such a lovely um love lever to your son, the book itself, but it's also a story about loss and, and dealing with that, uh, both before his diagnosis of glioblastoma and, and prior to that, just, you know, dealing with his life and his learning differences and managing all that. And I, th I think it's a lovely way that you've talked about that. You've been very honest and very vulnerable, which are really impressive. I didn't... Uh, uh... My, my getting into or my desire to write a book um, came about from the prompting of a friend uh, from Sun Valley, uh, somebody who I became friendly with, who was the head of a major publishing company. And um, uh, we, we, came, we became friends. Uh, I, I, I knew his, his wife and his wife's family, and that's how I got to know him. Um, and um, uh, he's a New York guy uh, heading a major publishing company and we go out for snowshoeing or playing golf in the summer or whatever it might be. And uh, uh, he would pose the question periodically. He said, yeah, you, you've had a hell of an interesting life, uh, uh, you know, with uh, your business career and uh, the adventures that you've taken. You and your wife are quite adventuresome. And then the start of the lead, losing your son and the, and, and the Lee Pesky Learning Center. And, um, uh, and I said, yeah, that's yeah, interesting. He said, you know, you ought to write a book. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I said to him, you know, Don, uh, I, I really, at my stage in life, to sit down and to write a book, I've never written a book before is I, it's just too much. I have the Lee Pesky Learning Center, which has had become enormously successful, uh, growing from two people to 36 people today, a not-for-profit, which requires a lot of attention, and I've given it a great deal of attention. Um, and then to sit myself down and knowing it's going to take not three months or six months, it's probably going to take years. Sure. And, um, 
you know, I just wasn't ready to do that at this stage in, in my life. And one day he said to me, he said, you know, you don't have to write the book. He says, you can write the book with someone. And he said, I'll be very candid with you that most biographies, um, autobi autobiographies or memoirs or so forth, he said, are written with someone. So someone sits down and they, they either use the person to edit or they use the person to talk with and they work on it together. And um, he says, you know, so you can really be able to attack it from that standpoint. And um, uh, it, that sort of made some sense to me. And so I um, one day said, you know, uh, how do I go about doing that? He said, well, let me introduce you to someone I think is a great writer. He introduced me to, it was a man, introduced me to this guy. And um, uh, he was very talented, but there was no way I felt any connection with him. Huh. And then uh, somebody I knew introduced me to an Emmy Award uh, broadcasting, public broadcasting um, uh uh, producer director and we talked one day and after we talked I said I'm not going to be able to spend months talking to this guy about my life and through just by a quirk um, uh, the library in Ketchum Idaho is an extraordinary library with an extraordinary executive director and uh, we were friends and I said to Jenny one day I said Jenny you know, I'm thinking of writing a book do you know someone and she didn't get back to me about a year, a year and a half later, she called up, she said, no, I got somebody you ought to talk to. And she introduced me to Claudia Ullum, who is my collaborator, co-author of, of the book. And uh, uh, Claudia had never written a book. She came into my office and we started to talk. And I said, you know, can you give me examples of any books you've written? She said, <laughs> I don't have any. Uh, but she's had a, she had a very interesting career and she's a very uh, delightful human being. And as we talked, um, she said, well, you know, I've written a couple of essays and maybe you want to look at them. And she sent me the essays and they were charming. And I said to her one day, I said, look, I've never written a book. You've never written a book. But there's something I think that I could work with you. Would you like to do it? And as she as she's written, she says, I ran home and I read I read up on everything I could about how to write a memoir and how to consider <laughs> a proposal. And we start, sat down and started to work together. And as far as I'm concerned, it worked out absolutely beautifully. It couldn't have worked out better. And I give a great deal of credit to the the, the way the book came out. Um, she had a marvelous way of it. We didn't go from beginning to end. We went and it, and it just moves around in various ways and comes back. And there's, for someone who's never written a book before, that, that's quite extraordinary, the way she weaved it together with me. And, you know, naturally, all of the facts, all of the information in the book came out of my soul and uh and and how we put it together was the collaboration of the two of us she'd write i'd edit go back to her go back to me <laughs> this i'd say this isn't me talking and you know i don't say things like that and you know and that's how it came about well that's one of the um the styles of the book that i so appreciate because it is continual but you go back and forth between uh times in your life and 
Lee's story as well, and your whole family, really. Uh, Wendy is definitely one of the stars of the story. Um, I hope you would agree. <laughs> uh, your wife is amazing. <laughs> she isn't here today, so I'll agree with you. Oh, good, good. <laughs> yeah, shh, don't, don't say it too loud. It, yeah, I, uh, my husband would feel the same way. You know, he would, uh, I'd hope he would anyway. But I do appreciate there's so many family stories in here. We really get to to feel like we know you and Wendy, Heidi and Greg, and Lee. I mean, I feel like I, I know them very well now after reading your book, which isn't always apparent in every memoir. You know, it may be very singular as far as the perspective. But I did appreciate some of the stories about Lee, especially um, uh, the story with the Porsche. Uh, I it resonated with me because my husband um, took out his father's Jaguar and um, thought he got away with it. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about Lee. Um, Lee, uh, he was the beautiful little human being to look at. Very, very charming, handsome young man, uh, 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 tall, uh, um, and uh, uh, very early on, uh, when he was going to this, uh, 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 well, I will use the word elegant, or I will use the word uh, uh, very fine private grade school back in Connecticut, um, the, the headmaster, not, the, not the, the head of the lower school, um, uh, met with Wendy and myself with a progress report. And he said, you know, um, Lee's, well, he's a very nice young man, he said, but, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if he's really up to uh, what we look for uh, mm. someone at this age. And I said, well, you're talking about a kid who's, you know, two years of age. How are you? You know, you're making the, he says, well, you know, he's not performing the way we like to see and uh Anyway, that was the first indication that maybe Lee wasn't, um, uh, maybe, you know, he just wasn't up to it. Uh, this was before the words learning disability ever came into the English language. Right. And English language didn't adopt the words learning disability until Lee was somewhere around 15 years of age. Mm -hmm. So any kid who had a learning disability and there are an awful lot of bright ones around, believe me, there are. Uh, but a, a kid who had a learning disability was either lazy or he was uh, dumb or he was not up to what we are looking for. And there was no understanding that maybe this child's brain was just wired a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, we didn't have that opportunity to find that out until Lee was, you know, 15, 16, 17 years of age, even a little bit more than that. Um, and so um, here I was, a hard-driving, uh, success-oriented father who had uh, what I envisioned I wanted my children to be like. Uh, you know, I wanted them to be, you know, a great soccer player. I wanted him <laughs> to be a smart kid in school. I wanted him to get into XYZ, uh, you know, college or university. And um, uh, so I was looking for the child I wanted. And uh, really what I should have been looking at was the child I had mm. and understand the child that I had. 
And earlier you had mentioned how this registered with you. Shelley, I can't begin to tell you how many parents, people have come up to me and said, oh my God, you have made me think so much. And I've never thought of it this way. And I never expressed it before. Um, everybody has, uh, you know, unless you have, a, you know, the very, very extraordinarily rare child that performs up to snuff on every single level. Right. You have a, you have a normal kid. <laughs> exactly. Because none of us quite match up to whatever the expectations are anyway. Uh, yeah. But I, but I appreciate you talking about that um, in that, like you said, you have an idea of what your kid's going to, you, you in your mind, I know I've done it for myself, you have an idea of their trajectory, what their future may hold, but you really don't. I mean, you, I mean, you hope for things, but you don't always know. Even when you have really talented, compliant kids who kind of follow the path that you've laid in front of them, they're still going to do their own thing at some, at some, hopefully they will, you know, that they will find their, their voice and, and their path. So... That's absolutely right. And it goes, um, I, I, I've had people say to me, you not only opened up my eyes with regard to my child, you've opened my eyes in re with regard to my marriage. Mm. You've opened up my eyes in regard to other people that I know that uh, I've been very judgmental. Uh, they'll say to me, I've been, you know, some, uh, you know, if a friend of mine isn't thinking the way I am, uh, you know, I uh, have, you know, I think that's uh, that's bad. That's wrong. You know, we're going to get in a fight. Well, maybe he has every right to think the way he does. And you try to understand, you know, what he is and where he comes from. Or with your wife, it's the same thing. You know, um, show me a marriage that uh, where, where somebody says we've never had a fight or we've never had a disagreement. And I'll say, boy, I don't know what kind of a relationship you have. But uh, that's not a healthy relationship. You should have disagreements in life. You should have, you should have discussions. You should be uncomfortable every now and then. You yeah, know, that's life. That's you know, that's my at least that's my feeling. Well, I I feel very similarly. I I'm always skeptical and say, you know, we just don't fight. And I'm like, really? <laughs> How boring. How boring, exactly. Because uh, there's there's some joy in in uh, making up and recovery. So, you oh, know, you know, yeah, so absolutely. there's there's always that. And I think sometimes a, a good fight, as I like to say it, is healthy because then it reminds you how much you like each other afterwards. Um, and it, and it, you're willing to stick around um, to see see what the next argument's going to be. <laughs> uh, hopefully, uh, that would be it. Well, um, when the book was first presented to me, I jumped at the chance to schedule an interview with you because I am familiar with the Lee Pesky Learning Center because I worked in um, literacy um, before working with Faith and Grief and worked for a nonprofit that does uh, online learning uh, in public schools for early, early readers, um, like K-4 through second grade, helping to kind of establish the foundations of literacy so that the future for that student looks more promising um, because literacy is, is the base. It's the foundation of everything. Whether it's number literacy or letter literacy, either one, I mean, because both, uh, some kids are better one way or the other. Um, but I was, I, I was very familiar with the Lee Pesky Learning Center. Um, they always show up in uh, papers and 
uh, experts and things like that. So uh, I was thrilled to be able to do that. That's, that's nice to hear. In the book, one of my favorite um, scenes in the book is when uh, shortly after Lee has died and your family is sitting around having the discussion about, you know, kind of what next. And I was so impressed by how quickly you came up with the idea of the center, like finding a way to give back and finding a way to make sense of the situation you were in. Tell me about the beginning of the Lee Pesky Center and how it, how that came to be, because you highlighted in the book, obviously. But right, uh, well, you know, first of all, um, Lee's illness from the time it was diagnosed to the time he died uh, was eight weeks. Oh. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, eight, uh, ten weeks. I'm sorry, ten weeks, two and a half months, um, uh, and uh, it was incredibly intense. And so the family was together um, all the time. Yeah. Uh, our, our daughter was going to have her first baby, um, uh, and she was in a ninth month of pregnancy. Our um, youngest son had gone off to graduate school and came back, uh, same graduate school I went to, and came back saying, I can't be up there knowing my brother is really not going to be here for that much longer. And so the family was, was together. And um, uh, Wendy is, a, uh, is an inc- incredibly uh, nice human being. And, uh, uh, and there's never any problems with Wendy. She doesn't cause problems. That's the way she is. And so we, we really were, there were no moments during the entire time when we had any uh, any situation where there was discomfort, mm. uh, the discomfort naturally was with what was happening to Lee. Anyway, um, we were having dinner one night. Uh, we had we had a two story house. Uh, Lee's bedroom was upstairs. We moved it down to the dining room, which was right next to our kitchen, and we took out the dining room table and the, the other paraphernalia that was in there. And Lee was uh, in a hospital bed in the in the dining room, and we were in the kitchen. We were having dinner. Lee was this was uh, near the end, and Lee was sleeping most of the time. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I said, you know, uh, he's going to be gone, and uh, we all know that. Uh, we've been told that by the neurosurgeon, um, and uh, you know, I'd like to be able to do something that keeps Lee's memory alive. And, um, you know, everybody said, you know, it's a nice idea, great idea, but like what? Uh, so here we are living in the mountains. And I said, you know, maybe we could get a trail on the ski mountain and have it, you know, uh, um, under right, uh, you know, having the trail cut and everything like right, that. Right. Lee's trail. Uh, or we do something, a hiking trail off in the mountains out there. And uh, there are trails like that that are named for people and, you know, have it become Lee's Trail. But those were things, as we were talking, that Lee liked to do. But it, was, uh, it wasn't anything that was really that extra special about yeah. Lee. And then you know, it just came up that, you know, look, we had learning disabilities and his learning disabilities impacted the family because Lee could be a pain in the neck and Lee could be a little ornery and Lee could be a little this or a little that. 
and he was he struggled and the other two were kids that you know had none of those problems the other two so lee had an impact on us and it was due to his learning disabilities so i, I don't know what, what caused it but i got up and went into the uh into the dining room lee's bedroom at that time and just sat down looked at him held his hand and so forth and uh came back into the kitchen where we were all sitting having our dinner and said, you know, what if we do something to help children who have learning disabilities that had the same situations that Lee had been confronting um, uh, all of his life and we do something to help those kids and it has Lee's name attached to it. And there was like unanimity amongst the family that this is something that really, really, really resonated with all of us. And that is how the idea for Lee Pesky Learning Center came about. Now, I am not anybody who has any experience in learning disabilities other than the fact that I had a child who had that problem. So to start a facility, I had to learn in a very short period of time, what, what, learning, you know, have, what, what it's all about, what's going on in the state of Idaho. I'm not going to do it in New York City. I did that, you get lost in New York City, uh, you know, but what's going on in Idaho? And the more I dug into it, the more I found out that there was nothing being done for kids with learning disabilities in <laughs> Idaho. There was no facility in the entire state that did diagnosis, remediation, counseling, which I call the holistic methodology. Um, and um, uh, that said to me, there is really a need. Um, let me also say, uh, let me get rid of that. Um, stop. <laughs> it's always the fun thing. Technology always takes over, no matter how hard we try. <laughs> okay, anyway. Let it, it'll go. It'll, it'll roll. We'll, we can wait till it stops ringing if you want. That's totally fine. Cause I want to make sure we capture this. Cause this is um, the good yeah, stuff. Uh, I was just saying about, uh, oh yeah, there was nothing, uh, nothing available. And so, um, uh, I, um, there's a facility in Vermont mm -hmm. that happens to be called the Stern Center. And this, and my wife's family happens to be Stern. Ah. So they, they, they had put up, some money to start this facility up in Burlington, Vermont. And so I decided to hop on a plane and to fly to Burlington, Vermont and sit down with the person who ran the Stern Center and some of her people and got a, got a full day uh, course uh, on what goes on with a facility, an independent facility the problems that you have, the problems that you have in dealing with the public school system, who doesn't want somebody from the outside coming in, getting involved right. in what they are doing, mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, you know the importance of a good executive director and so forth, and came back to Idaho. Uh, our daughter had just given birth to our first grandchild. Our son, uh, Greg, was going back to school. Um, uh, Wendy had... Um, uh, her, she was involved in a business. I had retired by that time, so I had full time, and I went at this with uh, uh, seven days a week, uh, ten hours a day, 
um, looking for somebody to be the executive director, some what we would do. And after talking to numerous people, I was introduced to a woman who happened to come from the Bronx, New York. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Small world, very quickly. <laughs> Blossom Turk. And when I heard that name I, and I met her, I said, please don't take this the wrong way. But I thought, Blossom Turk, you know, a woman wrestler. <laughs> and she <laughs> she said, well, being in education, sometimes you feel like it's wrestling all the time. And so That's true. <laughs> And we hit it off, and um, she had been the principal of the largest high school in the state, mm. Boise High School, for nine years. So she was well regarded in the education community, and it was a stroke of genius that I fell into by picking her to be our founding executive director. Everybody in the legislature knew her, people in the community knew her. She was the grand old lady of Boise, Boise High School, and the two of us bonded terrifically. And uh, that's how the Lee Pesky Learning Center came into existence. That's amazing. So what you talked sort of about the holistic method of looking at a child um, with learning differences. Tell me a little bit about what that what happens at the Lee Pesky Center as far as uh, learning centers that uh, a child might go through. When a child, what, ha- what happens is that a child who is... Uh, Uh, It is recognized by the family or the family has come to understand it because a teacher makes a remark or whatever it might be, is that, gee, you know, uh, he isn't performing up to uh, what his uh, we think he should be performing up to. Um, uh, Maybe he should be tested. Mm. Maybe you should find out whether there's some reason why. And so the child comes in and it's usually over a, a, a two day visit that they spend at the center going through tests, having conversations. It's not only the child that uh, we talk to, it's also the parents that we talk to. Um, and we try to get an understanding of exactly what, 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 the, what the problem is, which a lot of it comes through in the testing that we do, but also the emotional, social, emotional right, problems right. that are involved with it. And social emotional problems almost always enter into the situation because the child isn't performing up to what mm-hmm. the parents are hoping. And a lot of parents um, um, don't want to hear bad news. Yeah, they don't want to. They don't. They don't want to hear that this uh, that child has dyslexia or dysgraphia or ADHD or whatever it mm-hmm. might be. And they have to understand that no, you should. You should understand what it is because there are three billion wirings going on in that brain thank and you if done darn wired correctly there's going to be a reaction for it so we do the diagnosis um and then from the diagnosis and because we're all under one roof our remediation specialists are a few offices away from the people the psychologists who are doing the diagnosis so we sit down and we talk. It isn't like having the diagnosis done over here and then right. calling somebody at another facility and saying, I want you to see this child. Our people talk together. They meet together. They, they, they work together. And we also have counseling at the centers. So the counseling is there for the family and for the child. And so it's the, the holistic method is that it's all under one roof which really makes all the sense in the world. 
oh. all the kids in the world. Absolutely. And we had, I'll just add that we have a saying at the Lee Pesky Learning Center, uh, two things. One is that every child has their own fingerprint. So every child is different, just like fingerprints are all different or mm -hmm. snowflakes are all different. And yeah. the other thing is that we, we, we truly believe that every child who comes to us because they need the support that we can give them is the most important child who comes to us. So that child, each one is, is, is the single most important child that we look at them. So it isn't that it's in a big group that they're being handled or it isn't mm -hmm. that we put five kids together. It's that individual child. Yeah. Well, I, I love the model because I think like you had said earlier in your own family, um, Lee's learning differences affected the whole family. It, it isn't just the child who may have challenges and differences. It's the whole family has to deal with that. And, you know, you're dealing with uh, public schools and private schools and uh, red tape and, and having it in sort of a case model where the child has looked individual, but everybody's there on property. Everyone's there within reason to be able to make a, a complete evaluation is so key because like you said, it could take months, years even for a diagnosis that's correct otherwise because, you know, you're sending people all over town trying to get uh, this person to be evalu evaluate, this person to take do this test, this person to look at you know, the occupational side, this person to, to deal with the counseling side. So I just, I, I love the model. I think it's a, an effective way of care. Uh -huh. <clears throat> agree. Yeah. I agree completely. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, um, what are some of the things uh, from your experience building the center? Um, you know, I, to me, it's just a wonderful uh, way to honor um, Lee and his life and your experience with Lee. If a family member who's lost a loved one, lost a child, what thoughts or advice might you share in ways to remember them? Um, I'll, I'll talk, <clears throat> I'll talk uh, from the standpoint of uh, starting a not-for-profit. Mm. Uh, from the standpoint of starting a not-for-profit like we did, I would only, uh, I would definitely say, be cautious, because when when you wait, wait, when you when you start thinking about doing something like that, you're talking about it because you're passionate about something, <laughs> and the passion comes. The, the the greatest passion is as soon after the person you lose the person mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and and you know there is an expression i think that you know time heals uh, you know uh, heal heals you as you go along with grief mm -hmm. i think that also depends on individual people some it people does. some people carry their grief forever and some people you know over a period of time it lessens and it lessens so at the very beginning when you decide that you want to do something uh you're usually quite passionate um, it's an enormous, it, it takes enormous passion. It takes enormous energy. It takes enormous preparation and it takes finances. Mm. And, um, and 
there is the, the pitfall is the finances because unless you either have the wherewithal or unless you have the connections or unless you have people that you feel comfortable to go to, um, uh, the, the cost of doing something like this is, is and, and it's, not only, it's not only the cost, it's the fact that you have such a, such a investment emotionally mm-hmm. in what you are creating that you don't want that not to succeed. And if you find it on a slippery slope going down because my God, we need money for this, or we need money for that, or we gotta, we gotta have an office that looks nice because people come in, so we gotta have nice for a piece of furniture here. Or we have to have, you know, we have to register with the IRS to get, you know, and that costs X amount of dollars and X amount of time or we need to be incorporated, or we need an accountant, or we need... So it's something that you really have to understand. Passion is desperately needed, but passion isn't going to make it a success. It's mm-hmm. the other thing. So be, uh, just be cautious and understand that, that whatever you estimate it's going to cost, it's going to cost more than that. Mm-hmm. And um, I found out. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Ed, thank you for sharing that. I think it's so important because the passion definitely is, uh, you know, it's what makes things happen. Um, but you have to have all the other pieces to make it uh, flourish, to make it sustainable, because um, passion only gets you so far. Um, yeah, and you can still have that. You just have to figure out how do I channel that sometimes. And there, and there are other things you can do and, uh, you know, Whatever it might be, you can do something that, uh, you know, feeding the homeless in your community and memory of da da da, or whatever it might be uh, that you feel is something that is that, that fits into what the person was about and fits into what you're comfortable in doing. Uh, and it, you know, it can be something that is more spiritual, whatever that might be. And I can't you know, uh, express what that might be right now. And, um, you know, uh, so, you know, don't just say you got to do something that's a not-for-profit facility. It can be something else. Right. Uh, And it can be, as long as it's important to you and your family, and it's it's sort of agreed upon that that's what you're doing. And it can be small and it can be big. You know, it can be a, a non-profit, but it also can be a bench that oh, you absolutely. sit down in the park on a regular uh, afternoon and enjoy remembering your loved one. A- 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 absolutely. And you're right. A bench, it could be wonderful. And, you know, and you go there and sit down. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, um, talking about passion, you've had an extraordinary life, done amazing things, climbed mountains that most people just think about. <laughs> literally climbed mountains and figuratively climbed mountains. What, what meant the most to you? What means the most, what what means the most to me in, in life? Yeah. Uh, Well, um, I like to use the comparison of, uh, of success and fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I, I came from a background that was not a wealthy background. Uh, first one in my family to go to college. I don't believe my father ever graduated high school. We never had a conversation about it. 
Um, uh, he was a extremely hardworking man. He worked seven days a week. And on the eighth day, he rested. <laughs> and he rested, he rested the entire day. So we never really talked very much. Um, uh, what, what means the most to me at this stage in my life um, is without a doubt, seeing a kid who comes to the Lee Pesky Learning Center and we making progress on that kid and either a, I, I put it a light bulb goes on mm. or a smile comes on the kid's face. And, and I, I don't think I've ever felt seen a kid who came to the Lee Pesky Learning Center and God knows uh, this will get me in trouble with dentists that, who felt he was going to the dentist's office. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it, but it could be very intimidating and scary for a kid. You know, all these strangers show up and they're poking, well, not necessarily poking, prodding, but you're doing exams and tests and, and it could be very intimidating. And, and yeah. We, we are, we, it is really, I mean, everybody who works for us knows what we are about. Yeah. And the, what we are about is the connection that is made between between the remediation person and the child, that, that that child not only likes the person, but is seeing progress being made in their life. Mm -hmm. So when you ask me what means the most to me, what means the most to me is seeing a kid walk out of the Lee Pesky Learning Center with a smile on their face. And as my wife has said, that each one of those children leaves with a little bit of Lee in them. So that's what... That, that's, I mean, what, 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 you know, what could be more than that, at least for me? <laughs> well, and I, yeah. I love that phrase um, because it's true. I mean, uh, the impact that Lee's had is uh, intangible at this point, you yeah. know, um, because of the lives that you've and he has affected. Yeah. It's just beautiful. Thank you. And Thank you. so is the book. Um, I, Your book this month is our October uh, book of the month for our Faith and Grief podcast book club. It's a long title. We tried to shorten it. It just didn't work. So we just, we call it the book club, but, uh, you know, everybody has a book club, right? And everybody has a podcast these days. So <laughs> it's great. But I do have to um, uh, thank you for In My Childhood, Frank Purdue was a hero of mine because oh. I lived on the eastern shore of Maryland um, right. at the time when all his uh, uh, cur uh, uh, commercials were on all the time. And we were very proud of the fact that Purdue Chicken had farms in on the eastern shore of Maryland at the time. And they were, to me, some of the best and funniest commercials yes. ever. And, you know, I no one would have ever imagined this chicken farmer will become a celebrity, but I love that. Uh, yeah, and, and I will tell you a little anecdote because at the very beginning, my wife and I, we, we had the account. We were starting to create the, uh, create, create the, the commercials and so forth, and we came down for the National Chicken Cooking Contest that was held in Salisbury, Maryland. Yep. Mm -hmm. But Frank and I, uh, uh, he, was a, he was a tough character, and he was the tough man who made tender chickens. And um, uh, we got along quite well together. Yeah. Uh, you and I. And you saw the picture in there. Yeah, the I loved it that you had the picture in the book because it just, it cracked me up. I just, 
it seemed like that's that's one of those things out of your childhood, young teenage years that I just it was always like there in the background and just hilariously funny. And commercials like that is why um, I got into television years ago because I loved I thought it was so much fun creating things that were cool like that. And then I've had all kinds of things happen in my career, but eventually uh, ended up uh, working nonprofits, much like yourself. So, um, but nowhere near the amazing uh, no. uh, Kilimanjaro climbs that you had. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I will only say this, that I, I've talked to a reasonable amount of people since the book came out. You are without a doubt the most delightful. Oh, so thank, you. thank you. You're thank so you. kind. Yes, you're yes. so kind. No, there it's been a wonderful conversation, Alan. Thank you so much for your time today, and thank you so much for the book. The Faith and Grief Podcast is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to be a podcast producer, go to faithandgrief.org/donate and give today.